Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Me Athlete Radio. Hey everyone, Matt Frazier here with episode 20 of No Meat Athlete Radio, and this is an episode I've been excited about for a long time. My guest today is someone whose approach to nutrition has really turned upside down the way I think about food, especially when it comes to eating for longevity and for weight loss. And while weight loss isn't something I'm personally interested in, like for my own sake, I do get tons and tons of questions about it, and this man has some answers. My guest today is Ray Cronice, who you may have heard about before without realizing it. If you've read Tim Ferriss' Four Hour Body, you might remember the part in the beginning about the guy who had heard that Michael Phelps was eating 12,000 calories a day and figured out based on the amount of work that Michael Phelps claimed to be doing in the pool, uh, something didn't add up, that he was he was taking in far too many calories. He should be adding weight if we just did the typical calories in, calories out stuff, um, you know, exercise and nutrition. Well, what Ray discovered, of course, was that the cold temperature of the pool, uh, and we'll talk about this in the interview, that that, you know, Michael Phelps' body had to heat itself, so that itself was burning up a lot of these calories, which led him to go down the road of using cold, you know, all kinds of different cold methods for weight loss, like just having an ice pack on your neck or back, I believe, cold showers, all kinds of stuff like that. But prior to being featured in the 4-Hour Body, and by the way, he's also in the 4-Hour Body. He's one of the before-after case studies for his own weight loss. He lost a ton of weight, um, not literally a ton, of course, but he lost a lot of weight, has his before and after pictures in there, and this is all using his methods once he started thinking about nutrition. But before all this, Ray was a NASA scientist who co-founded with the XPRIZE founder, Peter Diamandis, and another guy, a company called Zero-G, which did those parabolic flights in the aircraft that allowed people to experience the feeling of weightlessness. For I think 30 or 40 seconds or so. Anyway, Ray first got in touch with me a few months ago when I wrote a post called Why Paleos and Vegans Should Stop Hating Each Other. Uh, Ray eats a 100% plant-based diet, but he does so entirely for health reasons. That's what he's arrived at through his research as the healthiest diet, or specifically not just vegan, because of course there are you know junk food vegans all over the place. Uh, he eats something like Joel Furman's Nutritarian Diet, which is plant-based, entirely whole foods, and really focused on the idea of nutrient density. Nutrients divided by calories is basically the formula for health. So in a lot of ways, Ray had the same view I did on the paleo versus vegan thing, and we got to talking, and actually talked on the phone for four and a half hours one day. Uh, I'm not the most talkative guy in the world by any means, so you know, this four and a half hours was mostly me just listening to Ray, and I was just fascinated by his approach to nutrition and the depth of understanding that he has. Then, this few months later, I guess about a month ago now, uh, when I was driving to Nashville on my book tour, we did another hour and a half call. Again, Ray just you know telling me about all kinds of nutrition stuff, and uh, I just knew we had to have him on this podcast. So as I said, his approach is very similar, but not identical to Dr. Joel Furman's, and they're actually good friends. Dr. Furman, of course, is the author of Eat to Live, uh, number one New York Times bestselling book, and it's the diet that I've been experimenting with for the past few weeks and actually wrote a post about last week. Um, you can check that out at my blog, by the way, nomeatathlete.com. But the Eat to Live diet is no oil, no added salt, and that's been the really tricky part for me is no salt because I love salt. Uh, extremely low alcohol and caffeine, 
and mostly just raw and cooked vegetables, some fruit, beans, raw nuts and seeds, and then very, very low amounts of starchy carbohydrates like bread, pasta, potatoes. And a lot of people have experienced a ton of weight loss on this diet. Uh, I'm not doing it for that reason, but I wanted the challenge of trying out a no oil and no added salt diet since I've heard more and more about these, especially the no oil thing. I mean, that, that's really getting popular among a lot of the, the vegan doctors, as they're called. So I just wanted to try it out and see, like, you know, would, would that amount of calories missing from my diet make a big difference in running and things like that? I haven't quite finished the experiment, but I will write a follow-up post, I believe, when I'm done. So look for that in a few weeks or so on the blog. <clears throat> All right, so I'm excited to get to this interview with Ray. I've got one announcement before I do, and that is that I'm working on and actually almost finished with a new ebook. I'm super excited about it because it's the first thing that I've done by myself in a while. And I think it's been like two and a half years since I put out the marathon roadmap and the half marathon roadmap, which which were entirely my own things. I can't believe it was it, it's only been that long. It seems like it's been five years since that happened. But uh, so much has happened since then. But all the products and things that I have done since then, Run Your BQ, Triathlon Roadmap, and then of course recently the print book, They've been collaborations with other authors or a publisher. So, you know, it's kind of fun just to do something that's all me and where there's there's no editor besides me and it's you know, you can kinda of, you know, have the chance of creating something really great. And that's the other reason I'm really, really pumped about this is that it's something that I'm really interested in. It's a shift away from fitness and nutrition right now. Not that I'm not interested in that stuff, of course, or I wouldn't be doing this. But uh it's about personal development and goal setting, which on the book tour, as I realized from the responses to my talks, that that was by far the most popular topic, like the goal setting thing. That's what, when I was signing books in line and people would come up and say, hey, you know, the talk was good. They said, I love the part about the goal setting. That was the part that really resonated with people and inspired them. So um, I was like, you know, that, that to me was the green light because I've always wanted to make a program about this. And that to me was the sign that I should just do it. So it's a 31-day program. No coincidence, of course, that I'm putting it out right before New Year's when people are thinking about goals. And, you know, I want people who are inspired to make some sort of change. And if you've heard any of my, my talks or heard the podcast episode prior to this one where we posted the live book tour talk, uh, you know that, you know, I'm I'm all for big, massive goals uh, that, you know, you can use that to really jumpstart this new year. And while it's not specifically about fitness or nutrition, of course, it can be used for those things. I mean, it's it's modeled after what I learned in the course of spending seven years trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon, starting from four hours and 53 minutes in my first marathon and getting all the way down to 3.09 to get into Boston, then running my first 100-mile ultra this summer, and then on a more personal note, I, I haven't talked about it much on the podcast, but I've written about it a good bit on No Meat Athlete, the anxiety issues that I went through last year, one of the roughest periods of my life, uh, and making the enormous shift from then, which was it's so impossible for me to believe that that was only 11 months ago that I was kind of in that place and all that has happened since then with the book and the book tour it's it's been an amazing year and you know a lot of it was very deliberate I mean I wrote a post just recently on No Meat Athlete about that it's called On Turning Pro one year later and it was just kind of about the the difference from then 11 months ago and now and how it was actually a deliberate uh, you know, an approach. I, I set the goal that I was going to to get over this and do a few things, including that hundred mile ultra marathon. I mean, it worked. It, it was it was has been an incredible year, and I'm really really excited for the next. So anyway, if that is up your alley, please check it out. Uh, it's at nomeatathlete.com/slash-thirty-one-days. That's the number three-one-days. Uh, and if you go there, you can sign up and get updates. The product is not yet ready, but 
I am thinking it should be done by before New Year's. So if you go there and sign up, you will get email from me one or two when it is uh, when it's just about ready to go. And as I said, it can be applied to health and fitness, but it also can you know it's it's very general. It's about setting a big, massive, unreasonable goal, and then taking the steps to make that a reality. If that's running a marathon, awesome. If it's about starting a business or learning some new skill entirely unrelated to fitness, that's, you know, it's for that too. So nomeatathlete.com slash 31 dash days. Check it out if you are interested in it. So that's it. Let's get to Ray and the interview. He's got so much good information and he's so passionate about it. I hope you enjoy it. I know I enjoyed talking to him and I'll talk to you again around the end of the year. Ray, how are you doing? Thank you for being here. Uh, great, Matt. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Good. So I mentioned very quickly a few of your, uh, you know, a little bit of your resume, but just to expand on it, and I'm hoping you can kind of help me fill in the holes here, but you worked for NASA for a while, 15 years, I think, as a scientist, and then founded this company with, I just realized, um, the XPRIZE founder, right? Peter Diamandis, yeah. is that his name? Exactly, yes. Yeah, and that company, what that made the Zero-G, or the, I don't even know the name of the, the spacecraft itself, but the idea was that it did the parabolic flight that would simulate zero gravity, basically, so people could, could be weightless. Exactly. So, yeah, I ended up going from weightless to weight loss. So, <laughs> right. but yeah, the, 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 the quick story was, uh, you know, my passion has always been space and, and, and science. Those are the things I was inspired by uh, Carl Sagan. He really in it in terms of a person that influenced me you know his series cosmos and his book cosmos got me driving for you know learning about truths you know how do you how do you how do you uh separate what's true from you know what people massively believe and so uh, that got me started in space and for 15 years i had a really amazing job there uh working in microgravity material science that's the looking at the effect of weightlessness on, on materials processing and I was in a biophysics plant so we were looking at uh, uh, we were looking at you know like for example on space station or what they're doing now in space station but then space lab we were looking at protein crystal growth different kinds of crystal growth experiments different kinds of bioconvection which is a sort of a self-organization of, of organisms that happens in everything from the red tide to mammalian semen samples so all these kinds of interesting bio, where, where biology meets physics and where gravity is a variable. And so one of the things I got to do at my job that was really fun was that I flew in this plane. It's a giant, you know, like a you know a giant plane that you would fly on commercially on Southwest. But we fly it from 24,000 to 34, back to 24,000 feet in 60 seconds. And, you know, while you're going over the top of this giant roller coaster, you get about 20 or 30 seconds of weightlessness. And so... For 12 years, I, I racked up you know thousands and thousands of parabolas doing science on there. Where we were looking at gravity being our variable. You know, we get high G during the pullouts and then low G over the top, and so you could actually use this to study. So, all that being said, one of my observations was that more people did science so that they could fly than flew to do science. I mean, everybody wanted excuse at NASA to get on this plane for obvious reasons. And my friends, as you mentioned, Peter Diamandis, also Byron Lichtenberg, who was a payload specialist. He flew on two spaceflight missions. The three of us got together in, in uh, well, originally through uh, Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, which was a, a pro-space organization, still is, uh, that was headquartered at uh, MIT. Peter started it, and eventually I took over it when he started another program. Uh, we'll get to that later. But, but basically, the three of us got together and said, hey, how can we – 
kick off this commercial space uh, enterprise. You know, you know, we NASA's in the business of creating heroes, the astronauts, and and we actually want to go to space. We want to figure out a way to make it commercial, and we didn't see that. You know, the government, and I think it's still true today, the government's not going to take over anything and make it cheaper. And we needed cheaper access to space. So we looked at, you know, parabolic flights. We also looked at, you know, sort of a sounding rocket kind of flight, you know, like what you saw with uh, with the X Prize, which is a suborbital flight where you just go up and down. You go a lot higher and fall a lot farther. So instead of 30 seconds of weightlessness, you get 20, you know, say four minutes of weightlessness. And, you know, and then you get a good Earth view, but you don't, you know, you actually don't orbit the Earth. You just go up to a high altitude. And and so anyway, that was our second idea. The third was to do orbital, you know, just to go all the way. And so for the next uh, 10 or 15 years, we we did this passionately, and we launched the company Zero-G. And now this year is our 10th year anniversary of flying. We started in 93, but we didn't start flying commercially until – with uh, regular passengers till 2004, um, I was a I was a um, consultant on this the Matrix sequels, and so we actually did some filming for that in 2000. Um, before we were actually, you know, that was while it was sort of a it was still under the development phase, but we had some approval on the FAA to do it for movies, but we couldn't do it for general paying passengers. And now, 10 years later, we've you know flown well over 10,000 people. All my kids flew. My son became the youngest kid to be in weightlessness at uh, at eight years old. And so anyway, with, with all that said, you know, I left and started another company, which actually was in swimming pools, had nothing to do with this as part of my entrepreneurial stuff. But uh, during all of that time, I did what probably a lot of your listeners did, and that is I – I, I gained a lot of weight, and so I ended up, you know, at, at the high point, 70 pounds he- heavier than my lightest. And um, when I sold my company out to my business partners in 2009, I decided, you know, hey, I really want to look at this full time and figure out why it was I gained weight and why nothing was working, and and that led me on a long journey that even led me to the plant-based diet. But that's where the where the idea of doing the cold was. It was just sort of a a desperate attempt to do anything to burn calories because my mindset back in 2008 was, you know, it's calories in, calories out. That I, you know, my problem was I wasn't active enough. And you know, as we, you and I have discussed earlier, activity probably doesn't play the role that everybody thinks it is. But that's what started it. And through a long set of just sort of crazy self experiments, I ended up uh, doing what I'm doing today. Gotcha. And would you say what you're doing today now, and we'll get into all the details for sure in just a few minutes, is is that bringing you more? Um, I don't I don't know if fame is the word, but but renowned for just and like because I I've just heard of you obviously because you're in the diet thing, which is what I'm um, focused on too. And we met through through a blog post actually that I wrote. You got in touch with me, but I mean, Four Hour Body, the ABC Nightline, the Ted Med, all all those had, did that stuff come with the Zero G or or is, has that has that been because of the just our, you know, the obsession with weight loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's actually a little bit of both. Um, pretty much any anything I've gotten into, I've I've managed to be able to work myself up to the top by asking simple questions and trying to challenge what the dogma was. So in space, I was able to do that, and and later when I was in the swimming pool industry, you know, if you Google my name in swimming pools, you'll see that I really challenged the whole idea of using main drains because they were dangerous for kids and ended up, you know 
working uh, at the highest levels in terms of passing laws to make pools and spas safer. Yeah. And then this was something I did here. You know, it just so happened that you know Tim and Tim uh, Ferris and I had a mutual friend, and we got introduced. And you know, he saw me one time, and then he saw me again. He's like, "Oh my God, how'd you lose all this weight?" And then I, I told him what I was doing. He couldn't believe he's like, can you keep a secret? And, you know, told me about the fact that he was working on this new book and would I mind him using my story. So obviously it doesn't hurt to be in a book that, you know, over a million copies were sold. Sure. You know, that certainly puts you out there and vice versa. Um, it turned out that for whatever reason, my story was crazy enough, but but solid enough and you know, just out there enough that it became a sticky story. You know, we never know why stories become sticky, but everybody wanted to talk about it when the book came out. So that helped uh, the Four Hour Body as well. So it helped him, and sure. and and so it's sort of so that. But 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 really and truthfully, you know, getting the having the sort of foundation of all of the very very you know accomplished scientists that I had met throughout my career allowed me to take crazy ideas and catapult them into sort of a more mainstream format. So, you know, that helped, you know, have access to some of the people that, you know, if you were just out there with an idea, you might not. So, you know, obviously my past career and the things that I'd done in the past had really helped in terms of, you know, giving you some foundation or credibility. But at the end of the day, you've, you know, you're starting from scratch. So I started from scratch in 2008 and, sort of worked my way through the the food and diet industry sure all right cool so let's let's give people the story of what exactly the you know what for those who haven't read four hour body uh, and i imagine most listeners have just because i tend to reference it a lot and mention it a lot but that to me and to a lot of people i've talked to was kind of the takeaway for the people who kind of just skimmed through it and, and remembered you know read a few sections and and remembered a few parts everyone remembers the the idea that you could lose weight by applying, you know, putting your body in a colder situation, whether that was with an ice pack or drinking ice water or whatever it was. But um, the idea and the story there, and I don't know if this is true or sort of uh, a shortened version of it, but it was that you ob observed that Michael Phelps was eating these 12,000 calories a day or heard that on the news and then thought, how is he, even with all the swimming he's doing, how is he possibly not gaining weight if he's consuming that many calories? And then you came to the idea that he was in a cold pool, so his body was, was working all the time to heat itself, and that was the source of this calorie burn. Is that that's where it all started? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was I, I had I had a spreadsheet. I was going to sit down like I do anything when I'm really and when I'm really focused on it. Let, you know, what are all the variables? I deconstruct exactly as Tim teaches in the Four Hour Chef, as exactly as he explains in Four Hour Body. I approach problems the same way that he does and and you know that's why we get along so well on this stuff but essentially you know I wanted to know why what I could do to lose weight you know how was I going to lose weight the question everybody else and so I I thought you know I'm going to come up with a list a spreadsheet of activities and you know if if at the end of the day it means I've got to do badminton at 3 and and you know uh, underwater golf at 4 or whatever it was it didn't matter i was going to do it for the next 6 months and i was going to conquer this cuz it it just couldn't be this hard to do especially having a background in biophysics i mean i i should it shouldn't be this hard to lose weight and yet it was um and so 
at the point that I realized that running a marathon was about three quarters of a pound of fat or the energy equivalency of that. And I thought, you know, if I run two marathons a week, I'll double my weight loss. I knew that I was dead because and I know you're going to you're going to get me on this, but I probably won't run a marathon in my lifetime. <laughs> Maybe I will. We've talked about yeah. it, but, but only if I can create a really cool experiment around it, because, you know, just I enjoy running. I mean, it's not like it's a bad thing, but. I, there's just a lot of other things I'd rather do, and running two of week certainly doesn't seem like a really good option to try to double my weight loss. And so I wanted to find a better way. And you know, the contradictions. You know, all the great science is in finding a contradiction. The biggest problem most people have is trying to recognize the right question to ask. So, you know, once I looked at that and said, and didn't just accept it, you know, as dogma. Michael Phelps, of course he has to eat a lot. He's an Olympic athlete. You know, he's athletic. He works out. He, that's a, but, you know, you just do a rough back-of-the-envelope calculation, and you know that he just can't possibly burn through all those calories. And so – and even my initial explanation then wasn't all the way right, but it was more right than what the story was, which is to just accept it. You know, I mean either he was saying this to, you know, to make the Chinese uh, competitors fat. <laughs> you know, to throw them off <laughs> or or something was here that, you know, was 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 not right, not quite explained. And so the idea was to sort of dig into that and say, hey, how can I how can I figure out what's going on here? And I did crazy stuff because I, you know, honestly, Matt, I had never been cold in my life. And what I mean by that, I mean, everybody's out and they're cold. But but I'd never gone to a point to say, you know, like what happens when I can't stop shivering? And so. You know, part of the whole process was to figure out, you know, what is what is cold, and and later I did the same thing with what is hungry, and and what I found out is is that you know the human body is is capable of so much more than what we're you know day to day accustomed to, and and the only you know from relation, you know, when someone asks you how in the world do you run as far as you can run, I mean I think you you, you see the same thing from that perspective. Sure. All right, so we don't want to make this whole thing about the cold, obviously. I mean, we can talk about that again in the context of, of athletics and maybe even a little bit in the context of weight loss. But the basic idea was that you applied cold in that, you know, in different situations, whether it was ice baths or whatever you did. And I'm sure it's all detailed in, in Four Hour Body how, how Tim and you recommend um, that someone does actually use that for weight loss. But how do you get from there now to the plant based diet? Because we haven't really mentioned that, that you eat. Um, what is a vegan diet? I mean, you don't call it vegan because your your motivations are not the ethical ones, but but simply health. And and how are we? Which is fine. I mean, that's like I think probably half of the nomad athlete audience is in exactly that boat. Um, how'd you get from from cold to to plant based? Yeah. So the the take home of all the cold is simply that while we associate activity with being hot and sweaty. It turns out the body burns a lot more calories when it's cold trying to stay at your normal temperature. And what's amazing is they can do it in a wide range of environments. But, you know, after I had lost my weight, so if you look at the book, you know, by about December that year, I'd lost most of it. I'd lost the, like the first uh, 50 pounds were gone. And I was within, you know, a shot, you know, 10 or 15 pounds of where I thought I would be. Um, and I went to – I got invited to go to uh, the TEDMED conference in 2009, and in between the time I had lost my weight and the time that I went to TEDMED, which would have been about the end of October 2009, I, I started having a lot of other issues that were – even though I was 
I was thin now, I was starting having reactive hypoglycemia. So I would get to points where I didn't know where I was when I was driving or I would fall asleep, you know, after a meal and I just, you know, would just can be completely out of it or I would just get completely confused. And it was really, really scary in some sense. And, you know, I, I looked at it and then in, even in my blood work, it looked like I was trending towards type two diabetes. I was already pre, pre, I guess they call it pre-diabetic. I think it should be called phase one type two diabetes, but anyway, it was uh, adult you know, the, the onset, you know, diabetes. And at that point I had limited my food to basically I was eating. I mean, I would occasionally eat say red meat, but I was pretty much uh, eggs, fish, and a little bit of dairy, and when it was dairy, it was mainly yogurt. I, I really loved yogurt, so I would eat yogurt. Um, so those were the only really three animal products that were left in my in my diet. And um, so I went to, to TED Med, and, and there I met uh, Dean and Ann Ornish. And you know what's really great about that venue is they sort of vet people coming in, so everybody is really interesting. So I had you know my chance to spend some time with them and talk a little bit about what I was doing, and Dean said, hey, Ray, why don't you just try – Cutting out the the dairy fish um, and and eggs um, for a little while and just see what happens. I mean, he said, you know, it 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 may help, it may not help, but it would certainly be something that would be easy to do, etc. And gosh, you know, I, I sort of went through the same thing. I think a lot of people here probably talked to somebody. Okay, what am I going to eat? You know, it seemed like for some reason at that point in my life, and I think everybody goes through that phase where you somehow equate seven ingredients to every food known to mankind, but it really isn't that bad. So I did it. Um, I bought uh, several books, uh, some from Bernard, some from Joel Furman, um, uh, some other you know cookbooks like The Happy Herbivore from Lindsay Nixon. So I bought some things to try to figure out, okay, how am I going to do this? And I decided that this week, in fact, yesterday would have been the anniversary. On Monday before Thanksgiving, I was going to do a completely animal-free diet for one whole year. I was going to do it, you know, and if everybody said, you know, all these bad things, you're going to run out of B, B12, you're going to have all these problems. And I thought, well, if I have those problems, it, it's, you know, I can fix them easily. I'm not making any political statement. I'm just going to do an experiment. And I guess the two things that surprised me most was one, how hard people objected to it. Like, you know, they predicted all of these disastrous results that none of them came true. But but gosh, I mean that and and honestly, at the time, I would have asked the same question and we'll get on to that in a minute, but you know, where do you get your protein? Or all these silly questions that came up, but but what was really great for me is Eat to Live by Joel Furman. Mm -hmm. um, it was at the right level. It had the right amount of science. It may be too scientific for some people, at least that particular book that he's gotten. He's gotten some other ones that maybe aren't so technical, but it had a lot of references, and it was clear that he didn't just footnote his opinions with technical-sounding references. He had actually read them, and so I chased some of those down. I looked, and I saw that, but I, I still, between – Say October 31st when this all happened, or around October 30th, and when I started, which would have been, you know, just before Thanksgiving, so around the you know 24th, 25th of uh, of of November, um, I I tried like you know shopping, etc. And Matt, I failed miserably, but I but no matter what, I thought you know I'm not I don't care, even if I do fail, I'm I'm just going to keep trying. I'm not going to give up. So 
it was really rough. I mean, the first month and a half, I was just going to this to this grocery store and buying stuff that I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and I would take it home, and I'd at least take a picture of the sign. Thank goodness for the iPhone, so I could have a name. And I'd say, well, you know, what in the hell do I do with this? And I would go look for a recipe, and some of it tasted horrible, <laughs> and some of it tasted good. But 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 over the time, I got my ten to fifteen meals that I could easily cook, that I knew what they were. And then once that happened, then it started changing. You know, then there were you know other issues like how do you travel and eat. And and all these other things that you've dealt with in your book and with in your I heard you talk when you were at Nashville talk about the same kind of challenges you had, but um, but what was amazing is is within I'm going to say less than two months because I didn't I unfortunately I I wasn't trying to do experiments at that point you know and um, within within two months I had completely reversed. All of those issues. I mean, I wasn't having any of those issues anymore, and I felt better. Uh, there weren't any, you know, negative downsides to it, and so I just kept going. Cool. So that's, I mean, that you mentioned the book tour. That was like the message that that came, that, you know, that I got from it from meeting so many people and hearing so many stories was that when people adopted a plant based diet, uh, for whatever the circumstances. It, it just corrected so many issues they were having, and that was something, you know, whether that was back pain or some sort of skin condition or headaches or asthma. I mean, just every possible thing you could imagine, people said, when I went plant-based, it corrected it. And that, until the book tour, I had thought that was, you know, just really anecdotal, and it still is just anecdotal, saying, you know, that I met these people and they said that. But I thought it was the very rare person, one in a thousand, who who had that story and who who happened to to voice it because they were so enthusiastic. But when it was ten percent of the people that I was meeting at these events um, having that exact story, it just it hit me that how how important and significant that is. Uh, and it's it's so interesting still that it's not really being reported on any sort of scientific level, um, which is which I think is with the work that you were really getting into now as you are starting to. Um, you know, research this stuff and, and put it on on a scientific foundation, um, and then what you you know your plans for the future. I think that's fantastic. So yep, but I, but I would say you know I mean like for anybody, and I'm sure you have links on there. Go to nutritionalfacts.org uh, with Michael Greger, uh, Dr. Michael Greger, and really great guy, and he's a guy that's helped me uh, along the way. We've 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 been emailing for years and years and met several times and. And he sends me papers. We send them back and forth when we find them. But it turns out there's actually a lot of literature, and there's a lot of science based on it. Now, you know, not all of it is what I think people want to generalize and call it. You know, most of it I think is probably going to be due to the fact of what you're crowding out of your diet. You know, you're crowd. You know, because in general, plants aren't as calorie dense as other foods and this is probably a, you know where we talk about you know vegan versus plant based versus paleo or those kinds of things but the point is is that you know my, what i think is fundamentally coming through all across and i've got a paper that's just gone in that'll be published soon on this as well but chronic overnutrition is a problem and that is the fact that we eat too often too much uh, too calorie dense because we can, not because we're designed to or because we're evolved to or whatever. It's because it just tastes good and we can. And we've solved that problem where we don't have 
to go look for food. It's it's everywhere. It looks it looks for us in terms of sales and marketing. Right. So so the point is, you know, we got food chasing us and it tastes good. And what that does does is when it creates so many extra so much excess food that you don't need, of course, you will find people on all sides of diets because all diets end up eliminating one or more groups of whatever the suspicious stuff is. You know, we'll call it goop for right now. And and they, they, they put it there, oh, that's their bad goop. Uh, this is my good goop. That's their bad goop. They, re- they eliminate a big part of it. And what ends up with is that they've also eliminated a lot of the food they were eating, you know, and it may be palatability. It may be simple sugars. It may be refined grains. It may be, you know, fat. It may be, you know, just, just pick your favorite poison because any of it in excess, including alcohol, you know, makes us sick. So, so what happens is, is that I think that you're, what you're hearing is true. And I do believe that when we look at all of the foods and solve all the problems, not just the weight problem, which is an example of me where I solved the weight problem, but I was still having some other issues. But when we solve the problem of that, when you solve the problem of the microbiome at the same time, when they solve the problem of living longer, of chronic disease, of cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes. When we look at all of them, what you end up is is that you know people still like to eat. And what a plant-based diet allows you to do, if you structure it perf- uh, or correctly, it allows you to eat a lot of food and not consume a lot of extra calories or a lot of extra things that you don't need. But I think you can construct an unhealthy plant-based diet. Sure, absolutely. And would you say that you can – on the topic of paleo, since that was how we kind of got in touch when I wrote the post about paleos you know, paleos and vegans, why they should stop hating each other, is when you email me and said, hey, this, this really jives with what I'm talking about. I, I would imagine that you'd argue that you can also construct a paleo diet that um, is also extremely healthy – if if it is not the you know modern marketing basically glorified Atkins version of paleo, but one that that um, you know is more of an accurate from you, you've you mentioned the phrase to me gather hunter instead of hunter gather, um, and would you say that that there is health to be had in some form of a paleo diet too? Well, I, you know, let's let's look at vegan and paleo because what I think both of them represent is the eat meat, don't eat meat argument that's been debated since Pythagoras' time. Okay, so you know, if we put the ideology away for a second, and I mean both ideology, the fact that we deserve to eat meat, which was you know uh, Rubner, a famous nutritionist, German nutritionist, said late 1800s, you know, he said it was you know basically our right to eat meat. Or whether it's someone who says we absolutely shouldn't because they have a you know a, a, an opposition. I mean, I, there's a really good book, and I'm forgetting the author's name right now. Uh, uh, some we love, some we hate, some we eat, um, which talks about. In fact, he's in North Carolina. He'd be a great person for you to interview. But he's um, talks about um, the psychology of how we look at food. So, for example, you know, you take somebody who says yes, we should eat meat, and then you say, well, what about cats and dogs? And suddenly they say, no, not so much. Right. Or if you say, you know, we should be meat. What about this really nasty rat or something over there that doesn't seem very appetizing? No, we don't want to do that. And then on the other side of it, you know, of the people that don't want to eat meat, you know, you you, you you've got the same same thing. So we have a wide range of of, of things that we can eat, and that's why we've been successful. Um, I, I I sort of don't even look at 
paleo diet in the way that it's been popularized. Um, I've watched it change in the four years that I've been involved, and as as well, I've also seen the vegan diet change in the four years. Um, some for the good, some for the bad. But what I would what I would say in terms of observing both is that if you take the I sh- I have the right to eat meat, I don't want you to eat meat argument aside. So let's just put that one for aside. What you'll see is is that you know paleo, for example, eliminates dairy. So does vegan. Okay, is there some health there? I think so. I think there is a a lot of of science out there that that deals with those. Paleo tends to focus on eliminating simple sugars. Vegan doesn't. So now you've got an issue where you've got some health problems that are you know vegan based health problems. You have fat vegans. I've met them. I've gone to conferences you know over the period of a year where I've met people. A year or two later, and they still hadn't lost their weight. So, you know, the whole fat vegan is eating, you know, excess refined oils, excess sugar, um, et cetera. So you've got those opportunities. You've got, you know, um, um, you know, do we need fats? You know, like, you know, the whole, you know, you need your healthy fats or good fats. Well, you know, obviously we can get those from plant source, so we can get them from 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 animal source. So when you look at all of this diet, what you end up with is Everybody takes sides based on some kind of ideology first normally, and then they throw all these other things in that are okay to eat, but they eliminate a lot of things. And what your blog, I think, pointed out pretty good is the fact that there is overlap between the two. I don't actually think bringing the two together is actually going to serve any purpose because we're going to get all the way down to – you know the 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 likewise the 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 similar poles of the magnet where it's the meat don't eat meat argument and when we push together it just becomes infinitely hard mm-hmm. but what we do have is a lot of things that we could that we should agree on i think and that we should look at limiting and and a lot of it has to do with excess refined calories and i don't care if the calories come from the grain excess refined grains or simple sugars or oils or excess meats in a diet, excess dairy in the diet. There's there's lots of places where where ca- excess highly processed calories come from, and eliminating them offloads your liver. So, you know, one of my collaborators that I'm working with, you know, they've got some really interesting papers that says, you know, they've got the the basic four: branched chain amino acids, fructose, alcohol, and trans fats. All four of those things must go through your liver. First to be digested, and all four of them have been implicated in metabolic disease. And so, when we look at any one of these diets, whether you're li- eliminating meat, or you're eliminating dairy, or you're eliminating you know, starches or simple sugars, it's easy to see how we eliminate large quantities of food, and we get health because we're just overall eating less. Right, and that's and that I think. You would agree. Um, I know Joel Furman has this same idea. Is that is that plant foods? A plant-based diet works so well because um, because it's it's more nutrient dense. I mean, fewer calories with more nutrients. Nutrients divided by calories equals health, right? Is that what his formula is? Well, he, yeah, and he, yeah, and he uses health equals N over C. Health equals nutrients divided by calories. But I'll caution you this: if I take a really high calorie or a really nutrient dense animal part like a liver. Mm-hmm. Now it's got tons of nutrients, so it's got way more than you ever need in a single meal. Just making the numerator really big doesn't mean the denominator can get big, and I think that's kind of the 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 the, 
the the faulty side of of you know looking at just nutri- nutrient density. We need sufficient nutrients, not excess. We've seen vitamin E in excess causing all kinds of problems and health problems. Uh, you know, so it's not just that we need as many nutrients we have. And of course, I think that's a problem with a lot of people with juicing and blending everything and doing shakes all the time. And this whole last century has been one of saying, we're all suffering from a lack of nutrients. The soil doesn't have nutrients. The plants don't have nutrients. Everybody's worried about nutrients. And the fact of the matter is people aren't dying of the lack of nutrients. They're actually dying of excess nutrition. So so when you look at this, I think you have to dig deeper than that. I think that, you know, it's possible, vegan and paleo alike, it's possible to still overeat and still overnourish yourself. And what I would say sets plants apart from, say, animal foods, if I were just going to say plant foods versus animal foods, is there are a lot of other, you know, the phytochemicals that are in there, a lot of things that we don't quite understand everything about how they help our body. There's also a bunch of of resistant starches and other kinds of fibers and all those saccharides that are helpful for our microbiome, you know, the hundred, you know, trillion hitchhikers on our 10 trillion cells. And so our health may be turnouts, and that's what we've seen in the last four years, but it may turn out that our health is as much about feeding these organisms that live in our absorption, you know, they, their waste products go in our absorption organ. And so it may be more about feeding them the right food to create a healthy population than, for example, to about how we're feeding our own cells. I mean, if we have plenty of nurt, you know, we're not malnourished as a society, but a hundred years ago we were. And for 7 million years, we probably were, we didn't have food was a huge problem. And you know, go outside right now and, and, and see. But the other other extreme is this week, you know, the the celebration of the harvest, hoping, wishing, wondering if we had collected enough food to make it through the cold winter that doesn't have food, has turned into an excuse for an unrelenting gluttony of food. I mean, it's just such an ironic twist, and I don't care if you're doing it as a vegan or a paleo, whether it's turkey there or not. It's still eating an enormous, huge amount of food just for the heck of it is probably not the best celebration, you know? And then you add to that that there is no winter that actually comes after that, as as you've told me, because we're in heated houses and we're constantly warm and we have all the food we need, so that winter never comes. Right, and that's that's sort of my hypothesis. You know, we've got you know seven million years of human ev- evolution, and if that's a mile, you know, agriculture's the last four and a half feet of that mile. Refrigeration and transportation, which fundamentally change everything um, about what we eat, what we can store, when we can eat it, is the last point nine inches. You know, the only species that are obese and chronically ill are us and the pets we keep warm and fed, and they get the same diseases we do. And so winter never comes, you know, and, right. and, and the fact is, is that, you know, it, 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 it spills over into exercise, it spills over into burning calories, it spills over into our constant obsession with protein, carbs, and fat, uh, and giving food labels, and, and all of that really is a big, you know, marketing push. It really has nothing to do with health, you know, and 
so back to what you were asking about the plants, why why Joel thinks uh, Joel Furman or or I or or you think that the plants uh, do provide extra food is because of all of what's in them, you know, and not just how they feed our cells, but how they how they culture the microbiome in 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 our bodies. And so, you know, thinking about it in a different way, you know, you may, you know, you may drop off, you know, 12 Amish guys with a really good message at a rock concert, but don't think they're going to have a really good luck getting their message across. I mean, it's just not going to happen. They're outnumbered. And that's what goes on in our bodies. You know, people take a bunch of probiotics or they'll eat yogurt the way I did saying, oh, yeah, but I'm getting probiotics. I'm getting healthy bacteria. You know, taking 8, 10, 20, even 32 bacteria or different forms of them and putting them in your digestive tract is not going to significantly change what your microbiome is if you're feeding a whole different population, you know, because the the ones you're feeding are going to crowd out the, you know, the health message of the ones that you're, you're killing with the other foods. So you've got to look at all of it. And if you think about what winter represented, if you're hungry, you know, you just might be out there munching on some some winter kale and just chewing on something, doing something, to because that's all you can do. Gorillas do it, and what we find from them is that they they you know what's invariant throughout the year is not protein. What's invariant throughout the year is non-protein energy, and what that means by what I mean by that is that they can they basically eat the same a number of calories throughout the year, but protein varies based on their food source. And so when they're in the, the month where there, there aren't fruits and there's actually just leaves and they're eating a huge part of their calories from leaves, they have to eat a ton more leaves. And what happens during those months? Their protein ingestion rights go all the way up to what we see in, say, a high-protein diet that we would see in a human diet. So they go up to those levels, up to the upper levels of what we would ingest, not because they're seeking protein. Right. But because, in fact, they're seeking energy and leaves just happen to be a really crappy way to get energy. And just and then so they make fun of, you know, when people make fun of me, you know, and say, oh, hey, you, you eat plants, you, know, you eat salad, you eat grass. And they're exactly right. You know, you, you actually do have to get enough calories unless you slather it in olive oil and sugar, which a lot of vegan people do. And guess what? They have weight problems. They have all kinds of other health problems and health issues that probably have nothing to do with the plants they're eating, but have to do with the extra empty calories they're eating. Gotcha. Okay, so we've we've talked about then what is the wrong way to eat as a plant-based dieter or a vegan, and let's let's focus on that rather than paleo, just because most people listening to this um, will be eating plant-based or at least ninety percent or more of that. So what what is the right way to eat then? I mean, I, I'm. I know from talking to you that, that you're not a fan of extracted oils. Um, what else? I mean, what else do we need to limit? And what, what, what should people eat? You know, I, I don't know that we know. I, I would tell you that my observation, just what I looked at, I, I read a lot of books in that, in that time period, in that year, and didn't even – and didn't stick with just the books and the vegans. So even though I was not eating any animal products during that year of self-experiment, I still was reading Gary Taub's books and some of the, all the other books that were being put out there on the paleo side. For me personally, um, I, and, and so, and I, I'm probably biased at this point. I, it's hard to say, but I would say that, you know, Joel Furman's eat to live 
probably has it as optimal as you can. So if you look at what he says, um, you know, essentially you're going to basically build your your sort of meals from the inside out. You're going to start with a a lot of cruciferous greens, a lot of things. He he uses the acronym G bombs: greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds. You know, start out there, and then you know add foods uh, to that point. He uh, he uses nuts and seeds for a source of fat. Um, because in addition to having the kinds of fat you need and be able to put energy in, they have other chemicals, you know, in there that are created in there that 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 help you um, from a from a, a longevity perspective. Um, on the other side of that, if I were just going to look at the plant-based side, I, I look at, for example, John McDougall, who you know, a guy I really like a lot of, went to a lot of his uh, his seminars, and he he talks about, for example, he 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 deals in the comfort food, so. You know, if I were to characterize those two, so, so he would have, for example, I shouldn't, I didn't, I didn't go into say, so he would have more starches in his diet, mm-hmm. uh, potatoes, corn, you know, those kind of things. Of course, Joel obviously pushes beans. He doesn't push high glycemic white, uh, the white kinds of carbohydrates, so or the white kinds, so he, sources of starches. So he doesn't do as much white rice. He doesn't do as what much white potato. He would do more sweet potato, but but he he doesn't base his diet on starches and the reason why he doesn't is because there are some other issues in terms of optimal nutrition on the other hand i would say that for the average person you know that that has you know coming from a typical western diet what john mcdougall does with starches um and i'm trying hard not to use the word carbohydrate here because you know my feeling about that but basically what he does with starches is he gives these people the comfort food and makes compliance with the diet easy. So on one side of it, you know, you've got a person who's looking at optimal nutrition and I love the foods that I eat there. There I don't have any problem sticking to a nutritarian diet at all. On the other side of it, you have uh John McDougall who basically has eliminated some of the fats out of the diet and he's replaced that energy source with say the the starches. And he's going for sort of the comfort foods that are easy for people to um, to you know incorporate. Everybody knows what a potato is. Everybody knows what corn is. Um, so I, I think that when we look at those two extremes, one of them you know somewhat eliminates fat, and the other one somewhat eliminates excess starches, and both of them have you know success in different ways. In terms of optimal, I think that. What ends up happening is, like we say, as we look at, for example, why I believe, say, a plant-based diet is better, say, than a a paleo diet because of what you crowd out when you start eating those foods, not necessarily that those foods are going to kill you if you eat them. But what you crowd out, Mm -hmm. you end up doing the same thing with these two diets. In other words, if you add too much oil, you crowd crowd out certain things, uh, for example, the nuts and seeds that you need. If you add too much starch, you actually crowd out the nuts and seeds you need to eat. So each one of them is sort of a stepping stone, and the biggest thing for for everyone is to understand that compliance and sticking to it is as important. So when you start, you should start with the end in mind and say, okay, how can I find my 10 or 15 meals that I'm going to eat over and over and over and over again? Because that's what you did if you were eating a Western diet. How do you do that? And I think both of those guys um, look at it from, say, you know, not opposite perspectives because, again, 
just like we've talked about, you know, you and I on the phone have talked about the overlap between vegan and paleo. Certainly, the over, uh, over, overlap between, say, John McDougal's and Joel Furman's diet, you know, there's they there's so much that's in agreement there that you know really the starch versus nuts and seeds is is of little consequence and i understand both points but i do believe the nuts and seeds are a, a healthy part of what you need to be eating okay now i don't want to spend too much longer on i mean i know you can go so much deeper into this and you have and it is fascinating and i i wish we could put out a four-hour podcast um that had all the details but um before we move on to the exercise thing, because I do want to talk about exercise, you hinted at it a little bit earlier, and I'm sure people are eager to get there. Um, what's you mentioned the protein, and carbohydrate, and fat that you do not like this this idea about you know break, focusing on nutrients, macronutrients, basically. Can you talk about that just a little bit before we go on an exercise? Yeah, yeah. So you know, if we look at it, let, let's talk with the one that most of your audience is going to understand pretty simply, and that is amino acids. Okay, so and or protein. Everybody wants to call protein. So, you know, we we've got these, you know, these, you know, twenty, twenty-two. You can there's different numbers depending on how you want to count them, but let's just call them twenty amino acids that our body needs, and our body synthesizes proteins with those amino acids, um, just like you know you take twenty-six letters of the alphabet and synthesize words and paragraphs and create stories. You know, so too does our body, and we have these things called genes that everybody talks about, you know, the home, Human Genome Project, and we've solved our, our human genome, and what those genes are, at least the big part of them, are 25,000 blueprints for protein. So, you know, a gene comes along, and it's got a certain sequence of, of amino acids that it kicks out, and that those amino acids, uh, because they're in a certain order, you know, sort of tell a story or part of how our body's built. So that's what a protein is. We really don't need proteins. Our body doesn't need proteins. We don't need to eat proteins. We don't the whole word is just a word that describes a long chain of amino acids that have biological activity. So, but what we do need is we do need to eat a certain amount of the amino acids. And I said earlier, part of those amino acids our body synthesizes, but the essential or indispensable amino acids, that group of amino acids we don't synthesize. We have to ingest them. And in fact, we share that problem with every other animal that's living. They all have to ingest them too. Now, plants, because they don't need, they, they can't run very fast and they don't eat, generally speaking, um, have to synthesize all 20 amino acids. So if you think about it a different way, you either eat the plant or you eat the animal that ate the plant, but the nutrition came from the plant. Animals don't create nutrition. They appropriate it. They concentrate it. They make it easy to find in one little place, especially if that nutrition you're looking for is calories. But the reason why you know, animals need to eat plants at some point in the chain is because they need these essential amino acids. And so you can either get it from you know, the, the cow eats the grass. The grass had the amino acids in it. The cow gets the amino acids. It concentrates. It makes flesh, and you eat the cow, and you get the amino acids. But this idea that protein equals meat or protein equals eggs or protein equals beans or protein equals anything is just a ridiculous notion. It's a ridiculous way to organize food because if you have enough calories in your diet to meet your daily needs – 
and you don't eat sugars and fats to do that, which are just energy without the rest of food. You eat whole foods, potatoes, it, you know, throw meat in there, throw milk in there, throw anything that's a really a food out there. You don't need to worry about protein at all. You're going to get enough. In fact, you're going to get an excess, and your body's going to have to work hard to get rid of the excess amino acids it didn't need. It'll burn them as fuel. So the point is, is that when we start talking about all of this, you got to remember that all of this stuff was designed in a time when people were starving, and and you know, protein was one of the first nutrients that you know we ever identified in terms of of you know, things that our body needed. It's one of the, the original ones. And, you know, we've been using it for a while, but over the years, it's come to mean different things. And today, protein equals meat. Obviously, any of your, your listeners can attest to that, and that's just not true. Well, the same thing is true of carbohydrates, okay? So, yes, it turns out that, you know, starch and simple sugars can share a, a particular bond, an alpha-1,4 glycidic bond, but that's irrelevant. I mean, if you're in biochemistry, it has some relevance, but it's irrelevant in terms of, you know, what a carbohydrate is or a carb. Because if someone says a potato is a carb, you know, and calls it a carb and don't want to eat those carbs, and I got to watch from those carbs, and those carbs make me fat. Well, first of all, potato isn't a carb. For many people in this world, a potato ends up being, as does rice, one of their primary protein sources. So in lots of countries and in lots of times, there's plenty of amino acids, the indispensable amino acids, the ones you don't have to synthesize. And when you don't have an excess of dietary amino acids, your body gets more – conserves the ones you have a lot more. But you can get what you need. If you meet your minimum daily requirement of calories with a potato, you get plenty of Amino acid. I didn't say protein that time because it's irrelevant. We don't even need to talk about. It. By the same token, it's not a carb. You know, it's not okay. a carb. And right. so what's happened is is that we create these classes of foods. You know, I think it's 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 kind of racism for food. You know, we we you know a religion for food. You know, we create this whole organization of food based on these labels that no one really understands. And then we don't go attack people based on it and or attack foods based on it. And and everybody does it. So it, it's not it's not just something that's being done by one group or the other, but it you know for me, the word protein, and you're talking to a guy that had worked in protein synthesis. I've synthesized proteins using E. coli and T4 bacteriophages to infect the codons and with synthesized DNA that had exactly what our de novo protein looked like. I've done that, and I knew it at that level, and yet it wasn't until I was sitting with a bunch of stuff that I didn't know what it was from the grocery store four years ago that I said, holy crap, this whole thing that I'm calling this protein is irrelevant. It's just completely irrelevant. I felt like such a fool, and I think everyone realizes it at some point, maybe not to the degree I did, but I just felt completely foolish. And then as I talked to other friends, friends that were endocrinologists, friends that were dietitians, and we explained and talked through it, and I said, okay, well, where am I wrong? And you know, you're not wrong, and that's what's so unbelievable that, that the story has been passed around so long that it – it, it's everywhere. So 
Fats are the same way. Obviously, everybody understands what alcohol is, so we got one of the four right. You know, everybody has a sort of a not everybody has a healthy relationship with alcohol. I think you know in Nashville when we were there together, we saw a few people that didn't have a, a healthy relationship with alcohol. But most people know, hey, I can't drink alcohol every meal. I can't have it every day. I can't have it, you know, whatever. But 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 other people don't know that about some of the other foods, and and they don't realize that essentially. A lot of foods that are tasty are sort of the, the the nutrient equivalent of ice cream. And instead of you know saying, "Hey, I got to cut out ice, chocolate ice cream because it's my favorite," they just change the flavor every day. And they say, "Well, I only eat chocolate ice cream once a meat once a month. Every other day, I use another flavor." You know, and right, that, that right. that's not cutting out ice cream. So. So that that's kind of uh, it's kind of you know there's obviously a lot more details you've known more of it that that go, I go into and and on my website you know I go if people start back um, you know back in 2012 where I started going through a series I explain carbohydrates I explain fats I explain proteins what they really mean and then I tell you don't talk about it because we start saying ridiculous things to sound important eat. A low glycemic carbohydrate instead of eat carrots. Right. You know, I know what a carrot is, but I, it worries me when people are saying, hmm, I got to get some protein, mm -hmm. as, as if it's some limit or, or any of those words. People love to sound smart. They love to sound educated. They love to sound like they know about this. But in doing so, you know, we end up with ridiculous ridiculous organizations of food, and it's just not that complicated. I mean, how in the hell did we get along for 7 million years of evolution? How did we get along without knowing about protein, carbs, and fat, and food labels? It's obviously ridiculous, and if you need to label the food, you probably shouldn't eat it. Right, right. In fact, if you can call it a protein, carb, and fat, a simple sugar is a carbohydrate, I wouldn't eat it. A oil, olive oil, is a, car is a fat. I wouldn't eat it. Hmm. Whey, whey powder is a protein. I wouldn't eat it. In other okay. words, I wouldn't eat those because all of them are highly refined, highly processed food, and you're going to end up doing the opposite of what we talked about with health. If health is nutrients over calories, you're getting a boatload of calories and you're getting no nutrition. Gotcha. All right. So it's so – it's, I mean the message is whole foods essentially, but, but it's um, – I guess you could say it's more nuanced than that when you start talking about – starches versus um seeds and and beans but but yeah i mean it's it's a simple message whole foods is is not hard to follow and um I, you know i think a lot of people still do think that they're eating a whole foods based diet when they include oil and i am one of those people uh, or have been one of those people and i'm kind of just starting to come around on the uh the problems with oil uh, even even for an athlete i'm kind of wondering if, if it's really something that um I should be eating, but so that's that's where I want to go. Not not with the oil anymore, although um, it's certainly a, an important point. So, and but let, let's 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 just take it one one step further because right, because it applies to exercise. So let's just look at this. An avocado has fat. Everybody recognizes that, right? A nut has fat. Even a lean cut of meat has fat in it. Okay, but. If I want to take something and I'm going to take – I'm going to use the example outside of your audience, outside the vegan audience. I'm going to say, should you eat lard? And the answer is no. I shouldn't eat lard. What is lard? Lard is taking meat that has some of the fat 
separating out all the other stuff and just putting the energy. Well, guess what? I don't care if you do it to an animal or do it to an olive. It's the same thing. Why do you want to smush all of the energy out of an oil, throw away all the fiber, all the protein, mm -hmm. all the other phytonutrients and things that might be in an olive, you know, and it's kind of a bad choice because normally people eat them in soaked in brine, and I'm not sure that that's much healthy. But you see right. my point yep. is that you're, you're throwing everything away. Or let's take it to orange juice. So what is orange juice? Orange juice is we've thrown away all the healthy fiber, we've thrown all the other nutrition, and we've kept the sugar water with a little bit of vitamin C. Yeah. Now, right. everybody says, well, you know, but vitamin C, we need vitamin C. Well, you know, potatoes have vitamin C. But nobody makes potato juice. You know why? Because it tastes like crap. <laughs> so the, the fact of the matter is, is this has nothing to do with vitamin C. Vitamin C is the trick they play on you to market to you. You know, it's like the, 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 the fat-free labels and all these others. And so when we, then we look at whey protein or all these people in your, in, in your you know, the ultra-marathon world of eating all of these shakes as if they can't get enough protein, the answer is – it's simply not true. They can get it in Whole Foods, and even from 1905, we did we did um, analysis. You know, Chittenden did a lot of work on looking at athletes and looking what their demand is, and we way overestimate what we need. So the point is, is that each one of those items, items, whey protein, olive oil, we could take sugar or we could take lard, and you start to see a theme here. Those are processed foods, and everybody else, because the food industry is good at misdirection, everybody else is worried about gluten. What's gluten? Gluten's a protein. Is it bad? Not nearly as bad as most of your audience thinks. It's just a, it's a protein out there. Are there people that are sensitive to it? Yes, there are people who are sensitive to soy. There's people who are sensitive to milk. There's people who are sensitive to nut seeds. Nuts, nuts and tree seeds, peanuts, if we look at the top eight allergens, guess what you're sensitive to? You're all sensitive to a protein of some sort. That's what your immune system re re responds to. But the point is, is that when you start extracting and smushing this stuff and making soy-based products, yeah. making all these highly refined products, those are just as processed as the boogeymen that everybody's worried about with GMO or worried about – you know, is there some pesticides here or worrying about, you know, uh, do we have some preservatives in there? I mean, people go nuts about these, quote, chemicals. You know, this is the, the, the fallacy of appeal to nature. It wasn't it wasn't natural. And so therefore, it can't be good for us. So my point I'm making is, is that all of those things that we're talking about are all in the same category. But they have because we've given them names of nutrition, vitamin C, protein, fats, good fats, healthy fats bad fats, oil, you know, whatever, um, we end up sweeping all that information under the rug. A potato is pretty easy to recognize. A carrot, kale is easy to recognize. I mean, the beets are easy to recognize. And, and they're food because they come packaged with everything. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wish we could go more with it. it it's, it's fascinating, and, and I know you have – Tons of knowledge about this stuff. Um, you mentioned your website, which, by the way, we haven't said yet. I'll put it in the show links, of course, but it is hypothermics.com. Um, if you go there, you'll, read, you'll see all the blurbs of the posts. Um, it is worth signing up so that you can read them entirely. Um, 
you put your email and and name. I mean, just enter your email, right, Ray? And then yeah, yeah, just an email and a password and and hit the remember me button so that you don't have to remember it. Um, the reason why I do it is because my goal wasn't to create a huge gigantic list to market and mail to. It was to create a really cool economy and a place for people to discuss. And I found that most of the people that troll and go from place to place to place and just offer opinion and 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 argue and debate and don't really care about uh, contributing, mm-hmm. most of those people don't take the time to do it or they get upset or they get mad at me because I require that you actually log in first. So right. um, so if they'll do that and and you log in once and hit the remember me, it, it, it you know you should never have to log in again. Cool. And that way you can send them like 10 spam messages, right? Because you, you do that, right? I don't do that. <laughs> I send them notices that say That's true, you don't. The, new, the new post is up. And, yep. I, and I don't even post that often, so it's you know. No, I've been on, I've been on the list for six months or something, and I've gotten like three emails from it. So <laughs> yep. don't worry. Um, yeah, so check that out, Ray. I've got two more questions before for you before we get out of here, just because I don't want to make this too terribly long. Um, you mentioned that you believe exercise is unnecessary from a health standpoint. Is that am I oversimplifying no, it by saying yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say that. I, okay. I would say health exercise has a a myriad of health benefits that we know about. But what exercise isn't good for is it's not an effective tool so that you can overeat. In other words, you know, if you look in nature, animals are limited by what they eat because they just have a limited source of of calories. And that's kind of how we're designed. But what we really want to believe, what everybody wants to believe is that if I exercise enough, I can eat anything. And it turns out it's not true. And you know this. How many fat marathon runners are there? Lots. Mm-hmm. Okay, so finishing a marathon doesn't necessarily mean you're healthy. It doesn't necessarily mean you're eating right, and you certainly don't have to be thin to do it. What it means is, is if you've trained yourself you know, not to be sore and your oxygen exchange and you can make it through, pace yourself. But the point I'm making is, is that I don't believe exercise is an effective way to lose weight. Furthermore, you ask any person who is 30, 50, 100 pounds overweight if, and, and ask them, you know, do you exercise? And the answer is yes, because for them, life is exercise. When they get up every morning, life is labored. And if inside there you can imagine your skinny self you know, carrying 100 extra pounds around, I don't care if you do it for an hour in a gym with steel or if you walk around with it all day long, it's adding to your metabolism. It's adding to the calories you built, you um, you burn. So this concept that somehow we don't move enough, that we're not active enough, that we're not, um, you know, that we're sedentary as society, which is said all the time, I don't believe there's data to support that. I don't believe that we are. In fact, when we, we compare ourselves, you mentioned the hunter-gatherers. When we compare ourselves, say, a, an office worker in San Francisco to a traditional hunter-gatherer, they have about the same energy expenditure during the day. Um, you know, The more you weigh – I hate to, to bust a lot of bubbles out there. The last couple of blogs have been about this. The more you weigh, the higher your metabolism is. It's not true that you're overweight because your metabolism is crashed. I don't care what all the all the – commercials say that remember those same commercials say you know a breakfast cereal has as much protein as an egg it's irrelevant you know so so the point is is that it's not that you have a crashed metabolism if and if lean muscle mass was the thing that burned calories because that's what they tell us we go exercise we put on lean muscle mass lean muscle mass burns more 
um, more calories than fat, and therefore we're going to lose weight. Well, if that's true, then why do football players and bodybuilders who have way more muscle mass than I'll ever have on my body, how do they get fat? And the answer is because they ate too much. And so it's a really, really simple thing. So it's not so much that exercise is bad. It's not. It's not so much that you shouldn't exercise. Certainly there's lots of benefits from exercise. But exercise is a really ineffective way to lose weight. It's highly prone to injury. It causes a lot of other issues that you have to deal with. And it sort of counters the whole concept of what losing weight is, bringing it back to where we started um, this thing with, with the idea of metabolic winter. You know, it's not, winter's a time when we starved. It wasn't a time when we had excess. And so, like it or not, you, you just can't out-exercise your mouth. That's what I, I tell people over and over and over. And unless you're doing the right things uh, to, to, to control what you're doing, inputting, all the running in the world isn't going to change it. And for me personally, and I think it's probably a, a good close for why I, I like a plant-based diet is because I love to eat. And eating's over when you swallow. And I can eat a ton of plant foods and chew, 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 and swallow, swallow, swallow. And it all tastes really great, and I love that part, and I don't gain weight doing it. So I hope that makes it a little bit clearer. So I'm not against it. I'm not against running. I'm not against you know people competing and doing that. What I'm against is telling people that are overweight that have been struggling like I was struggling that they're not moving enough. I'm I'm against telling these people that somehow you know they're they're lazy. I'm that they need to get in the gym that they just need to get up and move because that has absolutely nothing. But at the same time, I'm also going to be the bad guy because I'm going to say you're overweight because you eat too much, and maybe you don't like to hear that, but that is what it is. And nothing's going to change it, and it's not – you can juggle food. Everybody who's been unsuccessful has done this. You know, Matt, you, you weren't there like me, but you know what I'm talking about. You can juggle calories all you want. You can make all these tricks, but at the end of the day, lots of people gain it back because they don't fundamentally change their relationship with food. And the people I work with, that's what I do. I change that attitude, and I don't – you know, being fat, isn't, I don't, that doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you less worthy or any of those things, but I also don't use the empathy of saying that somehow it's not our fault because the answer is why it is our fault as a society is because we tell people the wrong thing. We tell them they're not moving enough. We tell them they can eat anything they want, but the truth is both of those things are untrue, but it, individually, absolutely, you can lose weight. doesn't matter what your genetics are. You can absolutely lose weight, and you can do it in a helpful way. All right, I, I love that. I mean, it's it's you're right. It's hard to hear that, like as someone who's been a runner for whatever twelve years now, and uh, you know, it's just it's weird to to wrap my brain around that that you know it's not something that is necessary. For health. You know, it, that feels like the reason to put in so many hours is that you know in, I'm doing something good for my health, and I know obviously there are tons and tons of benefits, as you mentioned, um, you know, mental achievements, whatever, and and. Some some actual physical things. Too. Oh no, there are definitely physiological benefits. Don't don't right. misrepresent. I've not said that exercise. I'm just saying that yeah, we've talked about that. Sure. Putting it in that perspective. Yep. Of yep. starting with the one reason most people do it, what gets them there, and because yep. here's yeah. the beautiful part: if you take care of the weight first and get down to a healthful weight, you know, it doesn't mean perfect shape. 
then exercise becomes a lot more pleasurable mm-hmm. as opposed to starting when you're heavy, when it's miserable, and in learning to hate it, right. which I don't – I get it. I understand. So it, although it's hard to hear, I mean, I still I love that, you know, that you're willing to challenge that that dogma that is just you know exercise equals weight loss and is necessary for weight loss. Um, it's it's fascinating to me, and I want to. I know you've done experiments where you have not done any exercise and tried to maintain muscle mass. I believe successfully, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm a little over two years from now, and I two years now of no regular exercise at all, mm-hmm. and I've not lost muscle mass, and uh, I've gone up and down. I've I've really I've stayed within like a 20 pound dead band. Um, like right now I'm up up, at, up probably not the highest I went because I went higher before I started some experiments in May. I went down and then I did some experiments. A lot of mine right now, the last year has been focused not on how to lose because I can do that very effectively, but really why do I gain? What 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 triggers those gains? Because that's actually what people need to learn so that once they lose the weight, they don't yeah, gain it back. And, and that's where I am now. But um, But – since I'm about to turn 50 this year, I just turned 49. I, I really enjoy, and every time I see Joel Furman, he says the same thing. He gets upset. I, I probably am going to stop this up and down thing because it's not helpful to be going up and down. But I'm I'm just a, mm-hmm. I love doing self experiments, and so I kind of get carried away. But but yeah. but yeah, the muscle mass has been had no problem, and I've had people lose as much as you know 130 pounds and really 109 pounds and. 164 days, which is around five months, and and still they lost no muscle mass. There there, there are papers on my site. If you go out out and see it, you'll see a person that did a 382 day fast lost 277 pounds. And you know, if a lot of that was muscle mass, I'm not saying they lost none because they probably did lose some. But if it was significant, you know, they'd be a jellyfish. I mean, you know, when you when you go from you know when you go from 200 you know from from 300 and something pounds down to 180. And, you know, you do it with water fast for 382 days, and certainly, you know, there would be no muscle left if the way the body worked was as we all describe it. Right, right. All right, so that's that's fascinating. Um, you and I have talked about doing some experiments. I'm especially interested in how can the cold stress idea actually help athletes, you know, replace some amount of training, um, you know, for in, in terms of performance, can, can that and, – and I mean certainly there's – it's known in recovery. People do the, the hot, cold um, contrast showers and ice baths. I mean it's that's not a new thing. But as far as using it um, as your training rather than just as your recovery, that's that's kind of interesting to me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to doing some more stuff with that with you. Um, but last thing before we go, and we got to just be pretty quick here, is, is – We've talked about weight loss. You obviously know a lot about it from your own experience and from everyone you've helped do it. Um, and you're working on some stuff that I don't want to share too many details with about yet. Um, but what you know, what what are a few points people can use to lose weight? Like what what would you say is the approach to losing weight in general terms? Well, I, I guess probably in its most basic stage is to understand that you know essentially we're our bodies are in two states. One is fed after we've had a meal and one is fasted, you know, when we're living off our stores. It's sort of a ridiculous notion to think that you need to eat the other another the storage organ of another plant or animal, i.e. fat, whether it's avocado or 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 lean or from, you know, saturated fat from meat, to somehow use your own storage organ. So, you're only as long as you're always eating. This idea that you're eating to keep your metabolism up is just false. So, 
Um, for me, it's it's decreased meal frequency um, is something that will always work. Um, I don't believe breaking fast in the morning is the most important meal, so I think that you actually you know shouldn't be eating all the time. Certainly not every waking hour of the day. Um, concentrate your meals. I mean, uh, look at what you're eating and and remember that you know two tablespoons of olive oil a day for 14 days is the calorie equivalent of one pound of fat. Okay, so think about how two tablespoons of olive oil can just disappear in what you're eating. So starting with whole foods, starting with something that doesn't have anything adding to it, and then you know doing when you're doing your sauteing, you don't have to use oil in every time you cook in the pan. You don't even have to use it in every meal. Um, loading, you know, a Joel says the salad is the is the main dish or whatever. Yeah. I'm not a salad guy. I, I wish I was. I've learned to like salads and love them, but just loading up on a really fiber-dense, calorie-poor portion. And when we talk about what's the portion of a salad, remember that a portion of a salad is the giant serving bowl that you would put on the Thanksgiving table. It's not the little bowl beside your plate. And okay? you're saying that's a good thing, right? Not, that, you're that's not saying a good that's thing. a bad thing. Right. You want to oh, no. eat that big. Absolutely. You want to eat that, but – but now let me tell you what's not a serving of the salad. Every single sal- salad on TGI Friday's menu, with the exception of their – I don't – I can't – now I've just forgotten the name. It's the Cobb. Anyway, with the exception of one salad, every salad on TGI mem- uh, I- I Friday's menu has more calories in it than the smallest burger and fry meal. Wow. And they're all fat calories, by the way, in both meals, whether it's the, there. So when we say, oh, my gosh, I'm eating vegan, I'm going out, I'm eating a salad out at, you know, at TGI Fridays, well, just remember th- that point. And if you go to, you know, go to, you go to the website, you'll see it. And so the point I'm making is, is that making it yourself, you don't, those things don't end up in the bowl unless you put them there. So, you know, just learning to like, um, you know, you know, less oily based dressings, you know, more the nuts and seeds using those in a Vitamix. And there's plenty of recipes for dressings in Joel's books and some of the others. So there, you know, on the starches side, if you're going to do the starches, if you're doing something like what John McDougall recommends, for sure, don't add tons of extra fat. You know, you don't want, you don't need any kind of oil or any kind of fat on potatoes. You just don't. They taste good without it. You can put all kinds of other flavors on it. Um, but you don't need that. One of my favorite go-to meals is a sweet potato with just a small amount of soy sauce and some toasted sesame seeds. And, and you know, when I'm doing some toasted sesame seeds in a dry pan and they turn shiny, they're kind of like uh, marshmallows, you know, where they turn just brown and then they go black. So you got to be careful. But just a few toasted sesame seeds adds just enough oil to make your taste buds light up, but not enough to make any difference from a calorie perspective. So. Little tips like that, I think you'll find them in a lot of these different books, but eating less frequently, eating a lot when you do eat, you know, make sure that you're done. Don't try to have a little rabbit-sized portion, a small portion, and then think, I'm going to eat again in a couple hours. That's the way I used to do it. Um, it's also the way I failed. So, um, and then, and then obviously loading in more of the plants and more of the greens that, you know, you didn't, you can, you can have a huge, huge serving of broccoli with a, a fake cheese sauce that, you know, it has some calories in it. it's not a problem. 
you know, but you don't want to put a lot of fake gravy on a potato because, you know, you get in that excess oil when you're having it with a potato, you end up overeating. So does that help? That does help, yeah. I mean, of course, I'm looking forward to whatever's coming next from you because I, I, I am just, I'd like to know, um, you know, start to finish here, you know, here's it is, here's the process, do it. And you've told me something about it, but, right. um, but yeah, those are fantastic tips. I've been doing some of that myself. Um, as anyone who's, who's gotten my book knows that I, I'm not anti-oil, especially in, in in the context of that book. I mean, you know, I wanted that book to be as approachable as possible so that someone picks it up off the shelf and says, um, hey, I didn't know you could be a no-meat athlete, and then and then looks at the recipes and says, hey, I could actually do this. This isn't that different from my food. Um, but, you know, I myself, as I mentioned, am experimenting with, with doing fewer and fewer oils, and I found exactly what you said. You do not need to have oil in the pan to saute. I, that's – I kind of came from – a, not not a cooking background, but just a, a background of really enjoying cooking, and um, it just seemed so wrong to put to put something in the pan and have water as the sauté liquid. <laughs> but but when you actually do it, you realize that the oil really doesn't add in, in a lot of cases doesn't add that much or anything to the flavor of the meal, and it works just fine without it. It's just this thing like we've gotten hung up on that you have to have oil in there if you're going to be frying something. Maybe frying is not the right word, but sautéing something. Um, so yeah, it works just fine. The salad dressings, we've been doing the nut-based ones from Joel Furman's books. Um, Super Immunity, I can vouch for as an excellent book. Yes. The New York Times bestseller list can vouch for Eat to Live as a great book. I just picked it up and have been starting to read it, but um, I love his stuff too. So yeah, great tips. Yeah, and and then on the other side, you know, Lindsay Nixon and Happy Herbivore, you know, she's gone the other way, so she has a lot of starches in her books. I I love a lot of, I especially like the the overseas one, the one that came out the international mm-hmm. one i think it's got a lot of stuff but in hers she focuses more on starch she goes in the direction of more of vesselton and colin camp campbell and those guys she does focuses more on the starches um which you know it has some downsides but again in terms of people complying and losing weight you can yeah, certainly do certainly. that and hers tend to be uh, low lower fat um low fat vegan chef um um veronica you know another person has some really good recipes out there um and I was going to say one other thing when you're talking about cooking, and this is one other little tip. Um, when I do stir-fry vegetables or when I do anything that's going to have garlic, because which is most things because I love garlic, if you are going to do oil, here's how you do it. Stir-fry the vegetables, get them done, pull them to the side of the wok or the side of the pan. In the, very, in the, in the center, do a very small, like a teaspoon of oil in the very center in the hot pan at the end. And add your garlic at the end, you know, use a garlic press so you're actually, you know, working all the garlic, you know, so it's, you know, you know, smooshed in there. Mm-hmm. And what you'll find is all that fragrant smell of the garlic and the flavor will go into the oil, the small amount. It, you know, you'll hit it really quick. The Maillard reaction happens. Then you toss your vegetables in it and you get all of this flavor and the oil does can activate your taste buds in that particular case. But you only had like a teaspoon. You know, some of it stayed in the spoon, some of it stayed in the pan, and some of it coated. You know, brought the the oil-based flavors out of the garlic onto the vegetable. So you you accomplished a hundred percent of what you were trying to do. But instead of putting it in the pan in the beginning and it all basically cooking away and your house smelling good, but the day the food not tasting well, you know, it's it's all right there. So that that's an example of of how you don't actually have to give up anything. You just don't get out the olive oil bottle. I, I, I use a four-ounce bottle of olive oil as what I buy 
and I normally throw away the end because it's rancid. So I never, I never even go through a four ounce bottle in a month. I, that's how little I use. But I cook a lot of meals with it because I only use just a tiny little bit for flavor, and now I can taste it. Right. Yeah. In the book, um, Matt Rusigno and I say, don't use a tablespoon of oil when a teaspoon will get the job done. And similarly, heat the pan up first, as you mentioned there, so that when you actually put that teaspoon of oil in there, it spreads out and, and coats the pan and looks like a decent amount, and you don't need to dump two or three tablespoons in there to, to do the job. Right. This is really similar to something you mentioned to me about salt, and I don't want to go much longer here, but um, you told me the other day that, that a serving of bread and a serving of potato chips have the same amount of sodium. It's just that in bread, it's, it's used in the cooking, whereas potato chips, it's used at the end, and that's the difference between using something at the beginning or, or during the cooking versus at the end. You can taste it a lot more at the end, so if you're going to add salt, try to keep it to the end. Yeah, so I, I never cook with salt anymore. I, I completely stopped doing that. And I always I have salt in a um, in a, a, a container that I can you know a glass container with a lid that, that I can actually put my fingers in and get a pinch of it. Mm-hmm. And I basically uh, when I do use it and I don't use much of it because I don't need to anymore. I've gotten accustomed. But when I do do it, I get it between my finger and thumb. I spread it out nice and smooth so there's not much there. And I put it on my food just before I eat it. And it's now on the outside instead of cooked in. Right. So it makes makes a huge difference. It, it tastes just as salty, and you use just a fraction of it without having to worry, you know, so. Yep. Yeah, and, and you're right. You absolutely can get used to, to change. I've, I've been a salt fiend for years um, and, and just started to get away from it recently. I still use it, but not not nearly in the amounts I did, and, and you get used to it. You get used to the flavors of the food without the salt there. Um, so, yeah, excellent stuff, Ray. I appreciate it all this time, and uh, – Look forward to doing whatever we end up doing in the future. Look forward to the rest of um, whatever you've got planned. So to everybody else, check out Ray's blog. It's called Thermogenics, but it is at hypothermics.com. I will put that in the show notes along with a link to Ray's TED Med Talk, um, the Wired feature, everything like that. I apologize for the kids screaming in my house. We, uh, it's Thanksgiving time. but <laughs> Anyway. So check out Ray's stuff. Ray, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to uh, share here or just like where people can get in touch anywhere else that is, that's better than what I've mentioned? No, you just keep doing, doing what you're doing. I love your blog, and I like reading it, like getting it. It's great to meet you in person finally, and I look forward to us doing some really cool things and, and challenging some dogma. All right. Great. Sounds good, Ray. I'll talk to you later. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye.